Hello, welcome back to Pod Save Africa. It's your host, Akandi Adirli, and I have a good friend of mine, Michael, here with me. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but we're going to be focusing on the topic of Sudan and a lot of the activities going on there. You've been hearing about the news, about the protests, about the stepping down, about the this, that, and next, and we're here to give you perspective because that's what we do at Pod Save Africa. Hey, Michael, how about you give my listeners a, a holler? How about you say hi to them? <laughs> let them? Let them know who you are. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Of course. Um, I guess, hello world, my name is Michael Majuk, um, or I guess if you want to call me by my traditional home name, my name is Mabur Majuk. Um, I come from the, the beautiful country of Sudan, so I'm here with my boy, you know, trying to tell you guys a little bit about Sudan and South Sudan, to kind of let y'all know what's happening and all that good stuff, so yeah. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, man, and I appreciate yeah. you doing this. Um, so let's let's hop right into Let's get right with the shits, okay? Yes, so, sir. Um, President Al-Bashir, is that the, I believe that's the correct, correct pronunciation, but, you know, he ruled, yeah. our understanding is that he ruled the country for 30 years. Um, we always get this perspective, right? They always tell you, like, oh, mm-hmm. he ruled a long time, so he must have been a terrible yeah. leader, he'll kick him out, his things mm-hmm. are bad. Um, <laughs> is that the perspective, like, that Sudanese people actually have of this man? You know, how did he do as president? And, you know. Uh, man, honestly, from, as far as I can think of, um, President Omar al-Bashir, he has pretty much been a rule of Sudan um, when Sudan was both one country and even now with Sudan separating into two countries, right. he's still the president of um, Sudan as the northern part. Mm-hmm. Now, just from doing a couple of research and you know speaking with my dad, because my dad actually has a book. He wrote a almost a 500, a 500 page book about Sudan and the history. Word. And about his own life. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I told you about that. that. Give, give us a title. Yeah. Give us a title. Let's talk <laughs> on Amazon. Where can we find it? I, well, no. So the book he wrote it back home in Sudan before we moved to America. Ooh, okay. So it hasn't been. Yeah, he wrote it by hand. And wow. this man hasn't. Yeah, we haven't like, um, I guess, transferred it over and into like hard copies or anything like that. But he, we have that book at home right now. Okay. Um, that he just talked about the history of Sudan, about himself and about everything else. But um, get that. Out. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So growing up, you know, my dad, you know, growing up in America, because we moved here when we were 10, my dad would always talk about, you know, Sudan and what we went through and how we made it out of Sudan. And when I left Sudan, I was about, you know, I want to say seven, seven and a half or so. I left Sudan, went to Egypt and um, from Egypt came to the United States. So to backtrack a little bit, when I was in Sudan, I remember um, you know, obviously, when you live in northern Sudan, Khartoum, which is the capital city, mm-hmm. you know, we predominantly go to like Arab schools, Arab, you know, predominantly Islamic schools. Um, and thankfully, at that time, my dad was my family were a little bit well off. You know, my dad was a superintendent, of, I think 400 schools or so. Um, and he yeah, quite a bit of schools around Khartoum and like the neighboring um, uh, like towns and cities and stuff like that. And then also he owned like a couple of businesses and stuff uh, throughout Khartoum. So we were good. We we're financially stable. We had nothing to worry about. You know, um, I remember I used to get driven to school in the morning, okay. get, you know, get driven back. Oh, so, okay. yeah, yeah. So my life, my life in Sudan was beautiful, man. And, um, you know, I think I can kind of re- recall back to like 19, 1994, um, when the, the vice president at the time, I don't know if he was the vice president or if he was the um, military um, general. Anyways, one of them died in Sudan. I forgot his name, but it was a big ordeal in Sudan. And I was asking my dad, 
why are we not? Because I because when everyone else at school was making a big deal out of it, everyone else around like my town was making a big deal out of it. Hmm. When I came home, no one was making a big deal out of it. Like no one was sad, no one was saying anything. My parents, my cousins, and my aunts. Because you know when you're in Africa and you're doing well, you have thirty people, thirty people plus in your in your house yeah. constantly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so and we are the only house that had the TV and like the electric around our area. So it was just not only my family, but it would be a lot of neighbors too. So cut his cut the story down a little bit. My dad sat me down. He was like, "We're not celebrating, or we're not gonna cry for him because this is one of the men had one of the men that pretty much has caused a lot of deaths to our people in the South region of Sudan, and so on and so forth." And I was just like, "What? You know, here I am, a four year old, trying to understand what the heck is my dad talking about?" And it's just like, "This is the man that we should not celebrate. This is the man that we should not mourn or cry for." Um, because he's caused a lot of hurt and pain to both my family, your mother's family, and to our people in general. So then, okay, you know, I let it go, didn't think of it or anything like that. So fast forward to, you know, now present day, um, things that I've seen, things that I've read, things that I've heard, the research that I've done in college about Sudan and South Sudan as a whole, I come to find out that Omar al-Bashir is ruthless. And one of the ways that I can say that he's ruthless is that, first of all, he took power in 1989 um, by a military coup. He caused a military coup and overthrew the current president at the time and took over the military, took over the military, took over the government, took over, you know, the, just the presidency in general. He became the president and was in rule at that time. And then that's when he made this um, general of the military that was really pretty much the one that helped him to, to take over the presidency, made him his vice president and now, when you're making someone that's your general for your military, making him your vice president, so now your mindsets are going to be pretty much locked into one way, which is a military-run um, authoritarian type of government, you know, which is essentially what we had in Sudan from, like, the 90s all the way until, like, 2005 after the quote-unquote civil war ended between North and South Sudan. And even after that, there was wars here and there, but it was just never documented or released out to the world. But he, um, one of the reasons why my family left from Sudan um, in like 1998 uh, or 97-ish is because he introduced this law. First of all, he introduced the, sh- the Sharia law yeah. in like 94. Sharia law pretty much means that he wanted the whole entire country of Sudan to be an Islamic country. Um, if you are not Islam, you can be an African descent, whatever, Indigenous beliefs, Christian beliefs, he didn't want none of that. He wanted everyone, black, white, whatever you are, he wanted all of you, all the people in Sudan at the time to be Islams or Islamic. And uh, unfortunately, the people of the South did not want that. Not unfortunately, actually, fortunately, we did not want that. So we stood our ground and we fought for that. And that's one thing. Second thing, it kind of stems back from 1956 when Sudan gained independence as a whole. When Sudan gained independence, the British rule pretty much asked the people of the South because at that time we were already kind of like established by, by ourselves okay. and at the same time with the North, the North was already somewhat established. So, but we were one country. So they asked both leaders from both sides, South Sudanese, do you guys want to stick with Sudan as a whole? The South Sudanese people didn't want to do that. And the reason why, because the British rule was offering for us to either be um, attached with Uganda and become one country with Uganda okay. or the reason why is because Ugandans are a poor African blood. You know, there was no mixtures or anything like that. Okay. You know, crazy enough that the British people thought about, you know, keeping Africans yeah, with Africans. Right. 
<laughs> but that's what they did. They asked us if we wanted that. Huh. So, and then the northern government, um, the northern people, pretty much, you know, because Sudan was was ruled by both Egyptian rule and British rule. So the Egyptian Arabs, some of their leaders came and you know kind of got into the ears and and heads and minds of the leaders of northern Sudan at the time. They said, hey, no, don't do that. Keep them together with you. But not knowing that there's a whole entire agenda for future reference. So the, the Egyptian rule was saying, no, keep them together with you. Keep them as one country. Don't try to separate. Don't try to let South Sudan go with Uganda. Keep them as one Sudan with you. Blah, blah. So the Sudanese in the north came back and they spoke with the Sudanese in the south. And they said, hey, we're brothers. We mix with each other. We're one people. We're one Sudan. They pretty much kind of like spoke the sweet talk. Mm-hmm. And it made the, you know, the people of the south, it made them pretty much become be convinced that we will live peacefully we will be one people and that happened so we we decided to you know to deny the fact that we would want to have our own country or to join uh uganda that we're going to be one sudan so we did that fast forward to the 90s 90s came along sharia law got introduced um the uh the bahar bahar um, nam and uh the river now no not river now Blue Nile, Nile right. dam project. Yeah, the Blue Nile dam, uh, dam project was being introduced. And pretty much that dam project was being introduced to where they were they were going to cut the flow of water that was coming in from the River Nile. They were going to, I guess, cut it into a certain type of way where the water was going directly up north. And it was pretty much going to dry the southern region, dry up the southern region. Wow. And all that water was going up north pretty much to feed Sudan in the north and to feed Egypt in the south and the central part of Egypt. Okay. That was also a part of the re- a part of the planning that they had from the 1950s, you know, was that because the water comes from the south, you know, and it flows upwards, the only river in the world that flows north. north right. So, yeah. So all of that, the Egyptians wanted to take control of the water, but then the quote-unquote wanted to share it with northern Sudan, uh, where North Sudan would prosper and south and then south. Egypt and Central Egypt would prosper because, as you know, desertification is coming from the north mm-hmm. and coming downwards. Right. So, so desertification was happening since the early 1950s. I'm, uh, I'm assuming. So they wanted to try to eradicate that before they got to now. Okay. Um. So yeah. So that whole entire dam project was being introduced. The whole entire um, uh, Sharia law got introduced in the ni- 1994. The dam project got introduced um, like 19, actually 1972 or so, which oh, that's what caused okay. the official civil war of Sudan to start. So at that time, they introduced the whole entire um, law of you know uh, Islamic belief in the whole entire country, mm-hmm. but it was not Sharia law yet. So in the 70s, they introduced that, and then they introduced the whole entire dam project. And then they introduce um, different things as far as like economic um, economic downshift from from the from the southern region. Hmm. So that caused the people of the south to you know stand up and pretty much have an uproar and say, hey, this is not what we want. We don't want to be Muslims. We don't want to have our water taken away from us. And you guys are screwing with our economic side of of the country. All right. All right. So civil war broke up or broke out, and pretty much we've been in war since that time of '72. So 81, 81, we had like a nine month peaceful time period. And then it popped up again in 82. So from 82 all the way to 2005, Jeez. the longest civil war, you know, longest civil war in, I guess, the whole entire world. Really world so history, yeah. world history, right. Yeah, man. So when that happened, um, 
you know, Sharia law got introduced in the 90s and it started trickling upwards, actually, believe it or not. It came from like North, South Sudan mm-hmm. and they, they pushed it up further. They didn't go downwards to where South Sudanese or majority of the Christians are. They didn't do that. They went north because the reason why they went north, you know about the Nuba Mountains, you know about Darfur, mm-hmm. you know um, certain regions within like Eastern Sudan are neighbors with Eritrea. Now, if you think about Eritrea, Eritrea and Ethiopia are predominantly Orthodox Christians, yes. original Christians. That's correct. So there, yeah, so there are Sudanese. Arab look-alike Sudanese, which that's really what they are, uh, but they're mixed with Africans that live there. That actually look Ethiopians. That's the right term to use. They they're more Habasha look-alike um, that live in that eastern region that were Orthodox. So they were like they wanted to move it upwards to where they can try to eradicate Christianity going up in the north, rather right? than trying to tackle yeah rather than trying to tackle the south because they felt that it would be a lot easier to you know kill that off going up north, which it was. Because that's where a lot of more Nubians started converting. Because Nuba, Nuba Mountains was predominantly black Christians or indigenous beliefs. Right. And the Sudanese in the north are majority, 95% of them are mixed people of Nuba and Arab. So when you see like northern Sudanese and even like these Ethiopians, that's how these people look. Because they're a mix of African people and Arab people. I see. So, yeah. So that's that. Nubians got converted. Some people in Darfur got converted. And of course, the people in um, this place called Al-Khalid, which is the eastern border to Eritrea, got converted. And then they started coming north more and more. And then they came officially now to Khartoum. Now, when they came into Khartoum, they didn't come into Khartoum attacked right away. They came in quietly. So people that were being attacked are people that are doing something, people that are in in government of, um, offices, people that are in businesses, people that are doing things that have noticed you know so of course my father is in that is in that area my father was a superintendent he had businesses right. he was well known you know so my dad started receiving threats like in the late 19 like 1997 he started receiving threats like oh if you don't you and your family if you don't convert blah blah, blah we will see what's going to happen to your business we will see what's going to happen wow. to your job yada 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 um a whole bunch of other stuff um at that time you know we just lost my younger sister um, God bless her. So one of my sisters passed away at that time. Um, it was natural. So when she passed, pretty much a week later on, the threats got really bad to my dad. And all he just packed us up, put us on the train. That was the only way. We couldn't fly by, you know, by airplane or we couldn't get in any type of other form. Like he had, we literally got put into a train because it was the safest, the quietest way for us to sneak out of Sudan. Threw us in there. We snuck out of Sudan, went to Egypt. We were in Egypt from late 98 um, until pretty much early 2000. Hmm. Now, when, when we were in Egypt for like 12 months, a whole year, we didn't hear from my dad or anything. Wow. You know, so we're thinking this man is dead, you know? So, yeah, so that's a little bit about the story as, you know, as how we left from Sudan to Egypt. But that kind of gives you an idea as to what this president has done to kind of make the people, you know, leave their homelands, leave their beloved areas, their beloved families that are still there and be torn from people that you love for so long. So when you think about what kind of president he is, I would truthfully say that this man was ruthless and he was heartless because he did not care. He did not think of humanity. He did not think of that these lands belong to these people way before these Arab nomads came into northern Sudan, came into Egypt. 
You know, the land belonged to these people. And now you're taking them away, pushing them away from their own land. You're taking them, taking what they believe is, believe in, even though Christianity is not our actual tradition, it's not our actual religion. Mm-hmm. You're taking away even like our own traditional beliefs, our own traditional religions, you know, and you're taking that away from us. You know, just because you wanted to have this quote unquote Islamic law, that's not even coming from you. It's coming from the Middle East. You know, they're forcing this upon you to force it upon your people, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, that's what made him the man that he is today. And honestly, I don't feel bad and I don't feel any type of way as to what's happening right now to him and to the country. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And do you. So this my understanding is from you is that this man is somebody who's been expansionist, violent, spreading mm-hmm. um, religion. Uh, using religion as a tool to kick people out of the country to to suppress dissidents. Exactly. I guess I'm fascinated by, you know, how does somebody who seems to have been so powerful at some point, enough so to create a coup, keep people out, and even stay in power for 30 years, how does he get kicked out? Like, what? why did the protest started, start this time? Like, what exactly triggered it? I think, I think what triggered the protest, well, because one, in 2000, and, um, I think it was 13 or 14, they tried to do the same thing during the Arab um, Arab Spring. Okay. Sudan also tried to do the same thing. But Omar al-Bashir was still very powerful then, and the government and the military still very well believed and um, were really behind him, right? Mm-hmm. So, but again, that was in 2013, right? Okay. So Sudan just now split into two in 2011, a year and a half before that. Right. So inflation... And high cost of, you know, living and everything did not really start hitting Sudan until like 2000, end of 2016, early 2017. That's when times started getting really hard. Um, economy started really, you know, falling down a little bit in Sudan. Um, what kind of triggered everything is the fact that now all of the, um, like the natural resources, predominantly oil, mm-hmm. uh, what, the one thing that was keeping Sudan, North Sudan, afloat whenever we were in peace and we were one country, mm-hmm. uh, or actually we weren't in peace, but whenever we were one country, that's the only thing, because all the oil would come from the south and it would go through the north through the port of, um, of Port Sudan. But then whenever we split into two, now two years later on in 2013, we um, as South Sudanese, we ended up you know, changing our pipe routes from Sudan to go through Kenya. Oh, so now the pipe route is going through Kenya and now they're building another pipe route to go through like Ethiopia and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and we're still in talks to keeping some of the pipe routes to go through Northern Sudan, but it's, uh, I don't know what's going on with that. But fast forward to now, um, you know, I was talking to my dad recently about it and also always, um, I was reading into it. Some of the things that kind of caused this whole entire um, uprise is simply you as a person, if you want to go to the hospital because you're sick and it's a really, you know, um, emergency, like it's a real dire emergency. It's okay. something that could be ca- um, catastrophic to yeah. you or to your family. Right. You go into the hospital, the emergency room, and they're asking for you to pay up front, pay the whole entire bill up front oh, wow. before you can even be seen by the doctor and or before you can even be government. treated. That's because of the inflation, inflation is at seventy percent. There's no money in the government. There's no money in the country. Money is there, but it's like the banks are the banks are shut down because the government has closed it off. You can't you can't even get your own money out to go and see the doctors wow. or anything like that. And this all goes back because whenever the country split into two, 
Omar al-Bashir, the little remaining um, oils or the pipes that were there in Sudan, he pretty much started kind of like uh, dividing that up amongst his tribesmen. Because in Sudan, even though these are like Arab or whatever, they're mixed people. Okay. Because now when you're when you're in Sudan, you mix in with the, the Sudanese that were there from time then. Right. So... Like there's a tribe called Bagadi, which is a tribe that like is an Arab mixed tribe, but they're mixed with my family too. Okay. I don't know exactly what his owner of Bashir tribe is. He's more northern. So he pretty much mixed some of the remaining barrels of oil, which is millions and billions of it. Um, and also he mixed he he separated or he divided that amongst his tribes people. Okay. And also he divided that amongst like his brothers. You know, and when you really think about it from like that time, from like 2013 till now, you look at his family, you look at his tribesmen, they're pretty much the only ones that are actually well off in Sudan and they're not suffering from what's happening now. So inflation being at 70 percent, you see a certain group of people prospering. Right. And everyone um, else is suffering. And everyone else is, and everyone else is suffering. Right. Um, education is pretty much non-existent. Like you have to go to either a private school or if you go to a private school, it's like it's off the wall in price. Uh, public schools, no one's wanting to teach public schools anymore because teachers are not being paid. So they don't want to teach. They're quitting. Um, so that's another issue. Housing crisis has risen. Um, simple things is like sewage. And you know, when you think about Africa, yes, yeah, sewage sucks. But sewage has gone to a point now where it's like they're not even cleaning some of these. You know, like sometimes how you have like those. I've seen this in Ghana. I don't know if I've seen it in Nigeria, but like, you know how like you have the um, the sewage pipes, like, but it's open. You see the right. when it rains, you see the water kind of flowing down the hill, right, or whatever. Right. But it's like it's like it's covered by metal things, but it's like you can still you can still see the water, see the red, stuff right. like that. Yeah, it's not it's not being taken care of. It's not being cleaned or anything, you know. And the main thing that really triggered this whole entire uprising this time around was a loaf of bread. You know, huh. Sudanese, all we eat is bread. Like, if we don't right. have anything else to eat, bread, bread, bread is the only thing that we eat. You know, I mean, like we eat, of course, with everything else. But it's like when you don't have money to buy meat, to buy veggies or to do this or to do that. Bread is the cheapest thing in Sudan. Wow. You know, so when you have bread, you know, you can drink tea with your bread. Right. At least you have bread. You, you have manage. tea, you're right. good. Right. You can manage. Right. You know, you have your tea, you have your bread, your life will be fine. <laughs> so we're sitting here and now they're looking at it. They're like, oh, I can't buy bread or I can, I can buy bread, but this bread is going to f- cost me five Sudanese pound. Five Sudanese pounds are like an American uh, currency. It's like a dollar fifty wow. for a loaf of bread. Okay. That's kind of expensive, you know? That is, to yeah, them, it's very expensive because right. if you look at it, you as an individual, as a as a as a middle class person in Sudan, you're being paid about three hundred pounds per month. Wow. Three hundred pounds per month, that's your check, that's your paycheck. That's right. it. You gotta survive off of that three hundred pounds. Now if you go and you wanna buy bread and it's now five it's five pounds, you wanna go buy a plate of meat, it's now seven pounds. You wanna buy milk, it's two pounds. You wanna wow. buy onions, it's two and a half pounds. Ten percent. This this and that is gone. Yeah, not wow. even ten more than ten percent. Wow. You know? So and then you still have to manage your hospital bills. You still have to manage, you know, your um your rentals. Like you're up, like let's say if you're renting a house or whatever, you have to pay for your mortgage, your your right. bills and all that stuff. All of these things, that three hundred pound is gone, like probably within a week. Hmm. You know, and then now you gotta sit, you gotta think about where the heck am I gonna get money again to feed my family? 
where am I going to get money again to feed my children, you know, my, uh, my children, of course. And where am I going to get money to pay my bills? All these different things that sound going to people's heads. So majority of the millennials in Sudan at this time, pretty much say, you know what? Screw it. It doesn't really matter what this person's going to do. It doesn't really matter what his government's going to do to us. We're going to go in the streets and we're going to protest. And this thing actually started, believe it or not, in the state that I was telling you about, Arkawit. Arkawit is the first area um, where the jihadi rule was coming from in like um, really? 90. Yeah, the jihadi rule when Umar, Umar Bashir introduced jihadi. Okay. Jihadi is pretty much, um, I don't know how to say it in English, but jihadi is this thing that was set up where these people were going through Sudan and pretty much eradicating anyone that's not Muslim, oh. you know? They would go and they would kill them all. Um, and it, it was jihad, you know, for Allah, like it's for God. You know, this is God's rule. This is God's doing. We need, we need to wipe off people that are not uh, cleansed, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's where the jihadi came in, you know. So this, so that's Arkawit is where jihadi started from. And then Arkawit is where this whole entire movement uprise started from for people to say, you know, what, we're done with this. We want to go ahead and now protest our right to govern ourselves, protest our right to stand up for our people, protest our right to have a loaf of bread that's going to cost me 0.5 cents, you know, Sudanese pound or something, right. you know, versus three Sudanese pounds. So these are the things that kind of cause that, you know, that's pretty much the main reason. But to me, I mean, <laughs> there's many, many, many more reasons that could yeah, cause right. not just that right. beyond that, you know? So it started, but this is something that started. <laughs> he deserved to be kicked out from the jump and, Exactly. That's, that's yeah. I know, man. Thank exactly. you so much for the thorough explanation because that really, really helps. Like, really puts things into context as to like how everything started from. I mean, a lot of it was triggered even beyond what we see today by the separation yeah. of Sudan and South Sudan. That's, that's exactly really awesome. So, so like, I guess one of my questions now is that okay, you know, we have our millennials out in the streets demanding. What, what are their specific demands? Were they just like Al Bashar stepped down? What what specific things are they asking for as regards to economic reform? Like, what what do they want to see change specifically? Because you know, I mean, one thing, one thing, one thing that I know the Sudanese millennials want to see specifically. Because when you so me as a as a Sudanese born millennial, now I claim South Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, when I sit and speak with a Sudanese um, individual that's my age group, they feel the same way I feel. It's like we sometimes we. We don't agree. We agree, but then we don't agree with the whole entire separation. We never really we like we we voted for it. But when you really think about it now, you sit down and you're like, damn, like, you know, the way the map looks now, it doesn't look as beautiful as it looked. The way I sit outside in a in a in like, let's say in a restaurant and there's a, a northern Sudanese person there and me and a South Sudanese person here. It's like we know each other that we're Sudanese, mm-hmm. but it's like we have this uncomfortability fact about it's like we don't know how to approach each other now you know so those are some of the issues you know that Sudanese people in the north that's one of the things that they're feeling they're like you have destroyed our land you have destroyed our people you have separated our people we want you to step down so we can feel comfortable again to talk amongst each other feel comfortable again to approach each other feel comfortable again to govern ourselves to have an understanding and have freedom of speeches have freedom of a press, like be okay to walk around the country, not dress for you know provocative, but to dress in a way that you feel comfortable because you're introducing these type of you know religious laws. Right, right. But if you think about it, those are not all the things that we want to focus on. But that's just like in a in a smaller sector. The main thing that they are really protesting for 
is freedom of speech. Hmm. They are protesting for freedom of government. Um, they want more of a democratic state versus this authoritarian state that's been there since the 80s or the late 80s, early 90s. Um, they want to fix the inflation problem. They want to fix the government. They want to fix the economy. They want to be able to start rebuilding the education system within Sudan. All the same things that every country in this world wants. But but in actuality, these are things that they don't have anymore. They had for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even that comfortable whenever, whenever they had it. But they want it back. And they want it back in full force. You know, they don't want to be broken up halfway or anything like that. Like, they actually want everything that they originally had, you know? So these are some of the things that they're demanding at this point. They're just like, we need to, if we can't even sit down to discuss this or discuss ways that we can make this happen, then no, we don't, we don't even want you, you know? And after, after, after Bashir stepped down and the the country was quote unquote being ruled by, um, by military officials, you know, the, the military officials that were ruling the country, or I guess in transition, because it was a, tra- it's a it's a transitioning period. So when the government, you know, falls, military has to take over. It in a way, I really hate that because it definitely does become an authoritarian country at this time. Yeah, yeah. But they took over, and now the um, the minister of, of like of or yeah, the minister of military, I believe, or something. I forgot exactly what his title is. He now to step down which is, again, what the people wants, right, because right. he is a part of Bashir's um, cabinet right, regime, you know? Right. So, like, they don't want that. You know, and people started protesting more when they saw that he was the one that was trying to take over and run the country until they find a new government, okay, you so, know? So is there so an election like they, that's going to happen, or what, what do you think is going to happen? There's an election. That, the election is supposed to take place in 2020, you know? So, but the people don't want anything that has to do with Bashir's uh, regime, Anything that has to do with regime uh, with Bashir's um, uh, government party, okay. I think they're the NCR or something like that. I don't really know exactly what that stands for, uh, but they don't want anything that has to do with that party at all to govern the people or to be in the government or anything like that. Excellent, excellent. And and what mm-hmm. you know, I guess a, another follow up question is, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that stands to happen when like such powerful rulers step down is that there's always a vacuum. Question now is that are there people in line, you know, younger political parties, younger candidates that are lined up working towards getting ready for that 2020 election so that, you know, you can really feel good candidates if there's, you know, have a good election, really, really have the Sudanese people pick because what's clearly what it clearly seems that more than at any other point in in a long time, um, you guys have a lot of leverage. And also, you know, I'm also aware that, you know, this is not the first time you've used protests to topple a government before. So. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to, you know, I'm curious as to how do things go this time so that, you know, you make sure you're selecting a leader or a leadership team or a cabinet that really, really speaks for the people and helps get all of these things that you're asking for. Um, I would say that there that there is a number of, you know, classes that are that are that are coming up now of young millennials, young future leaders that are trying to bring about these change that we're speaking of. Um, I, 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 I don't know much about it. As far as North Sudan, I do know for like South Sudan, for instance, we have New SPLA, uh, which New SPLA pretty much stands uh, Sudan's People Liberation Army or um, Sudan's People Liberation Army Association, okay. which is SPLAA. Um, so there's a new there's a new format of that in South Sudan um, that's you know kind of building up uh, like 
a big army, a big following right now, you know, and it's 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 pretty much like young South Sudanese that have been born in South Sudan, that have been educated in Sudan and South Sudan and um, with a, a mixture of South Sudanese that studied abroad that are now, you know, stationed in South Sudan and living there. They're developing a new group of people that can officially take over the country. Also, South Sudan is going to have this opportunity to vote for a new president in 2020 as well. So that's what I know much about. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, now, I guess kind of moving out of the news and, and some of the, uh, I mean, also one final question before we kind of shift out of the news. Um, you're a member yeah. of the diaspora and you're actively involved. What, like, how do people that are not in Sudan feel about all of these? How are you guys watching? What are you guys preparing for? Like, how does that interaction look? Because Sudan does have a large diaspora presence for both Sudan and, you know, North Sudan and South Sudan. You know, um, the the Sudanese people, both North and South, are are pretty much thrilled and excited about this current um, uh, uh, strikes that are happening in Sudan and the stepping down of the president and all that. Reason why is just because everyone is tired of Omar, of Omar Bashir. Omar Bashir has not done anything but literally destroy the country. The people that are not tired of him or that are not angry with him are, again, people from his own group, from his own tribe, or from his own government um, officials. Those are the only ones that still stand for him. But if you really think about it, you have a ruthless govern, uh, government. You have someone that tries to introduce a certain law, uh, a certain religious law, and that's the only law you can go with. Someone that you know, sends off people to certain areas of his own country to just go and kill off a certain group of people because they're not pure Arab. Who the heck is pure Arab in Sudan now? You know, you send people to Darfur um, and you kill off Darfurians just because they believe in a certain type of way or they said they're, they're Muslims, but they're an Arab Muslim or an African Muslim, you know? Mm. So like all of Sudanese are Afro-Arabs, if you really think about it. Right. So all Sudanese, both North and South, in the diaspora, I like to believe that they're all thrilled and they're all happy for this current situation, only because you get to throw away the bad and maybe yeah. now build, for lack of a better term, build a new. There's a chance now to rebuild your country. And I mean, everyone still believes or everyone still thinks that maybe one day Sudan and, and South Sudan will reunite. Okay. I don't know if that's going to happen in my time, in my time period or, or my lifetime, but if it does, I... I, I I kind of hesitate just because, you know, there's there's a lot of history with that. Like my own family, you know, dying during the war and stuff like that. And I I, I always think about what would my grandfather think? The man that was killed because he did not want to convert, you know, um, what what would my grandmother think that got her hut bombed, you know, and made it was still alive, but died a couple of days later, you know. So all these different things, I, I think about that when, when we say, oh, what do you feel about, you know, Sudan coming back into one country or being one people again? It's like, I know it's not the people's fault uh-huh. that caused all these hardships, you know, but it's like you think about even these people, why would they allow that? Why would they allow the government to do what they did for these for these 20 plus years, you know? Uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're excited, but I don't know about the whole thing about being one people again, one country. We're one people, but I don't know about being one country. One country anymore. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Now, kind of peeling it back away from the politics. And first of all, thank you so much. I, that's perhaps. Yeah. Hey, guys, listeners, this is an. That's the kind of explanation you don't get in the news <laughs> headlines. That's and that's what this podcast is about. Uh, right. So, yeah, just kind of peeling back and talking about your involvement. You're actively and heavily involved in the diaspora. Um, how about you talk mm-hmm. about some of your engagement, some of the events you of some of the events you put on to unite and bring together Sudanese people and to um, kind of work together. Yeah. Do you want mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, man, definitely. Um, you know, since I've been here, I've you know I've learned more about my country, fell in love with my country even more. When South Sudan became South Sudan, I fell in love with South Sudan even more, um, and like the culture and the peoples and so on and so forth. Um, I've done, you know, not to boost myself, but I think I've I've done I've done a good number of things just to kind of like let my name let let my country's name stand proud and stand up there, you know. And you kind of have to do that when you're when majority of your friends are Nigerians. You know, Nigerians <laughs> it's like Nigerians when you when you come to Nigerian, they bleed green and white. So <laughs> so it's like I have to make sure that when a Nigerian is bleeding green and white, I'm bleeding red, green, white, blue, purple, all of it all at once. Uh, let this person know like you're not the only proud person from your country. You know, I'm proud right. from my country too. But um yeah man, currently I am I participate heavily on South Sudan Unite, um, and South Sudan Unite is an, uh, an initiative started by Luol Deng. Uh, Luol Deng is an NBA basketball player. He played for the Chicago Bulls, Miami Heat, um, uh, LA, um, Cleveland, various different teams. Um, so he started a nonprofit uh, back in like 2005 called um, Luol Deng Foundation. Okay, uh, you guys can look it up, Luol Deng Foundation. Um, and when he started that foundation, the foundation is pretty much to kind of like help young South Sudanese in the diaspora, America, Canada, Europe, uh, Australia, help them to find their calling in sports. You know, so whether it's ba- predominantly, pr- primarily basketball. Okay. So he focused on that and he's been doing that for a while. And then in 2016, he introduced South Sudan Unite. Now, South Sudan Unite is a, a weekend initiative where we come to a certain area within the United States. We're doing it in the United States right now. We go to a certain city um, and we pretty much kind of like invade that city, for lack of a better term, for a week. And within that time period, we prepare ourselves for the weekend. And the weekend on a Friday, we do a workshop. Um, for all young South Sudanese. And within that workshop, we, we pretty much tackle various things. We tackle education. We tackle uh, college readiness and college preparedness. Mm-hmm. We tackle mental health, mental awareness. Um, we tackle um, just various things of adulthood and education. That's the main thing that we want to focus on. We want to help bring along this next powerful generation of young South Sudanese that are here in America to know how powerful we are, to know what we can do here and take back home and how to develop our country. Because mm. again, we are the newest country, the youngest country in the world. So that that is one thing that we focus on. Um, and with the workshops, we, we lead into a, um, a discussion panel. And the discussion panel will bring about young South Sudanese that are pretty much professionals now in the field of education, science, technology, um, and various different things. We put them on stage and then we pretty much discuss many different things. We discuss, again, mental health, mental awareness. We discuss education. We discuss living in America. 
the difference between our parents and ourselves and how is it to manage ourselves within America. So that's that on a Friday. Saturday, we pretty much do cultural day. We do festivals, a festival where we do different things, um, games and all that, leading to the night where we do a cultural night. And the cultural night, we just do a whole bunch of our traditional dances, um, man, and just give out awards to young South Sudanese that are doing things that are um, graduating from colleges and stuff like that around the area. That's awesome. um, yeah, and then leading to Sunday, we do like an arts, because one thing people don't know, South Sudan is really big into, not just sports, but we're really big into arts. Mm. And when I say arts, if you think about South Sudanese people, like we do, we're big into visual art. Okay. And um, just kind of like in the sense of like fashion, right? So fashion art, that's okay. one thing we're big in. You know, some of the biggest or the number one South, uh, supermodel or world supermodel that was dark skinned was from South Sudan originally. Okay. You know, and that's Alak Wack. Mm-hmm. The first dark dark uh, model, black model, was from South Sudan. What was her name? Alak Wack. Alak okay. Yeah. Um, you can spell it as A L E K. Last name is W-E-K. Alec Wack was the first supermodel to be, or the first dark supermodel in the world, you know, and she hails from South Sudan. And then after that, it just, it went crazy after that. So that's that. Um, One thing that has not been introduced to the world yet is just just painting and sculpturing in South Sudan. That's another big thing right now in South Sudan. It's big here in the diaspora as well. Uh, So yeah, so we focus... On Sunday, we focus on fashion, we focus on our visual arts, uh, and we just focus on, um, you know, verbal art, verbal art in the sense of like poetry and so on and so forth. That's the thing that we focus on on, on Saturday, on Sunday. So that's one of the biggest things that I kind of do right now to um, bring about South Sudanese um, to the map, to the world. Um, and then in a larger scale, um, heavily involved in um, just like the African diaspora here in Dallas, you know, um, I was just chosen to be a part of, um, East Africa or the African, well, I'm a part of the East African chamber of commerce here in Dallas. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm one of the representatives, I'm, I'm the representative of my country, um, for the youth sector within the East African chamber of commerce. Um, also we, we, the African union just introduced, um, African union diaspora office, the six, I think it's the sixth district. The sixth district is here in Dallas. So, um, I was just chosen to be a part of that starting team on the official team to pretty much kind of introduce the African union. And the reason why the African union decided the African union diaspora decided to come to America now and start this whole diaspora thing is because one, they want to introduce the fact of how powerful Africa is right now and what we need to do as African youth, African millennials, to start really introducing that within each other. Yeah. You know, so this African diaspora that is here in Texas now, we're mobilizing ourselves to go out and do various workshops, various events to kind of like inform young Africans here, let them know like, hey, you do know that this, this, and this is happening in your countries, right? Or you do know that this, this, and this is happening all over different parts of Africa. Like right now, Rwanda. Um, Rwanda has focused on um, building a strong force of female IT um, individuals, so female IT workers. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a whole school that they just build where they're focused on training young girls about IT, information technology. That's all they're focused on. Exactly. You know, That's beautiful. You know, so within the next 10 to 12 years, you're going to have a powerful force of young Rwandan women 
going into the workforce knowing information technology, you know? And not only that, but things like the cleanliness of the country. Rwanda is the cleanest country in Africa right now. They literally have a national cleaning day where they go out the whole entire country. They go out into the streets and they clean their streets. Every corner, every door, every every section, every compound, people within that area are out and they're cleaning their streets one day a month and they clean their whole entire street. Wow. Can you imagine that? That's, you know? That's so, isn't that amazing? If you if you speak about your country, your country alone, minus the negative part, but your country alone is literally one of the world's fastest growing economies. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So these are these are the kind of things that we want to talk about amongst the youth, amongst ourselves and say, hey, we're doing it. We're just being kind of like brainwashed in a way sometimes about living in this, you know, Western society and having all these beautiful things that we have all those beautiful gold and silver. Like, no, you have actual real gold and silver in your own country that you can go and pull up and actually come back to this country and decide to sell it in your own price and your own money and make your own money out of it and go back and invest in your own country. Mm. You know, people don't know. Sometimes some Africans don't know about Akon and what he's just recently done. Yeah, you know? No, yeah, yeah. We, I got yeah. a whole episode on that as well. I'm trying to find somebody <laughs> who, I'm trying to find somebody who works with his organization actually. Uh, I can find you someone. You I don't know if you found someone. I I, I I believe with my contacts, I probably know someone that really? works directly with Akon. Yeah, okay. I'll definitely look into that. Let's uh, let's have a an offline conversation about that. Yeah, that, uh, definitely. Yeah, man, that's I mean, just remarkable work. Everything from Sudanese United to your involvement. I think that's how I found out through you through one of my my best friends, James. Who was like, yo, there's this guy that's like you know killing it in the scene in, in, uh, in Dallas. Yeah. That's remarkable work, um, both with your knowledge on, on Sudan and its culture and its history, even yeah. to what's going on right now. Um, and yeah, I guess one of my final questions is, and, and you are the most, you are one of the most optimistic people I've met regarding the content. <laughs> um, so I need, I need my listeners to hear you talk about like why and what you're optimistic about with regard to the continent, to Sudan specifically. <laughs> this is, this is usually the, the final question. This is the final question I ask all my guests. Like, what are you excited about? What are you optimistic about? And you know, what, uh, on, on the other hand, what, what worries you? What concerns you? What should we be careful about? What could you be? pessimistic about so that's my final question man I, honestly I'm, I'm i'm gonna start with the positive first okay. when you said what can i be most optimistic you know optimistic about for the whole entire continent mm-hmm. and my country i just started smiling you know and i'm smiling from ear to ear because when i really look at africa and um i look into my country sudan and south sudan um i just see so much talent so much beauty within the people, so much. And it might sound cliche, but it's literally the truth. You think about it and you sit down and you see the amount of knowledge that we store into our minds that we're just not forcefully pushing out to the world right now, you know, and we're letting other people utilize that. And we're not utilizing that towards ourselves and towards our continent. Hmm. I think the day, which is it's coming pretty soon, I feel it. The moment that Africans, young Africans realize like, hey, you know what? Maybe I should take my services of being a doctor to my country and actually utilize that. Maybe I should take my services of being an educator to my country and utilize this. Maybe I should take this and that and so on and so forth to my continent and utilize it there. Maybe our governments, our leaders say, hey, you know what, brother and sister? Maybe we should really introduce this whole entire um, continent-wide um, 
uplifting of, 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 of travels and having a one united African passport, you know, where you can travel freely and be able to trade freely and not have any type of like trade uh, trading tariff, uh, tariffs or taxes or anything like that. Have all of that open up and realize like how powerful we can actually be. Or maybe if we decide like what China did and close our borders for a while, you know, and build within ourselves and actually go out. You know, these are my optimistic view. But if you go back into a smaller scale, I would just literally say that the day or actually it's happening. But I want to see what's going to happen in 10 years from now when more Africans have gone to Africa and have actually invested their time in Africa, where Africa will be in 10 years, hmm. you know. Um, and that's Africa as a whole. South Sudan, I am very excited to see now that we kind of have some type of, this is South Sudan, not North Sudan, because I don't, I, I, I see great things for North Sudan, but I don't see much happening within the, the, the small time period. But as far as South Sudan, um, I see it right now because I speak with my cousins that are there and the ones that are in schools right now that are you know, receiving the best educations in South Sudan. And I see how the government has finally said, you know what, let's shake hands and let's reopen our doors to our young brothers and sisters that are out there and bring them in and let's let them now try to teach us or try to help us to rebuild this country. It's happened since this peace agreement that happened about two months ago. Mm -hmm. Now South Sudanese from abroad that are going back to South Sudan, they're actually receiving government jobs receiving wow. the pay wow. and they're getting the opportunity to actually implement some things that before a months ago, a year ago, South Sudanese that come from abroad to try to work in the government were being overlooked. Wow. We're not even given a chance, you know, to even say anything. So now they're giving that opportunity. They're talking more, you know, and these are not being pushed out to the public eye. The biggest thing that gets pushed out to the public eye is the negativity that's happening out there. You know, and if you see South Sudanese now in America, from what I know, um, there is, I think, from what I know personally through South Sudan United, we have 3,650 medical students right now that are becoming doctors. Wow. That's a big number. Wow. You know, 3,600 South Sudanese wow. youth that are in medical school right now studying That's to become incredible. doctors. That's, That's huge. Right. We have petroleum engineers, a good number of them. We have... Um, People that are, we have a small number, but we have about, I think, six lawyers now officially from what I know of. I don't know how much more we have, okay. but this is in America only, excluding other places. So this is a small scale. But then again, you have to think about we have a small country and we are now the millennials that are here now. We're the first official group of people to now go out there and actually do things and try to implement change. You know, it's not like, you know, other countries from Africa that have been here from the 40s or whatever that are obviously way far above us in, in doing that. But with me, I'm excited because I see this 3,600 number of people that are becoming doctors, this six number of people that are lawyers within the United States is, government, is American government, but it's still, it's beautiful to just see that. And then when they start implementing that into the country, uh, I don't know. I, I just I just see amazing things yeah, happening from there. There's a lot to be excited about, sir. Yeah. That's so, and that's... Yeah, and as far as what makes me nervous yeah. about the continent, I would say, you know, people not realizing the potential that we could have. And I would say uh, letting others get to your mind and letting you know that the country would never or the continent would never be the continent that you see in this 
fairy tale that you that that you speak of because someone has told me that before about my country and um, it was somebody from my country he told me he was like you have such a fairy tale mind that you think south sudan will become this utopia world or whatever it's never going to happen and i'm like what i'm like it's people like you that are unoptimistic that you sit there and and you listen to and it kills your mood and it makes you not want to believe in anything anymore you know so i would say one thing that makes me nervous is people you know disbelieving that these amazing things could happen you know if disbelief has a word i i'm nervous about that you know (laughs) so that makes me nervous uh, you know when 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 people don't believe anymore when when people don't have that optimistic view Mm. of their countries of their continent you know, people don't have that fairy tale mind of their country, of their continent. Have that dream big. Have this fairy tale utopia in your head because it actually can happen. Look at Dubai. Yeah. Not a country. It's a, it's, a, it's a small little city, you know, within the, within the UAE. But they believed and they had this utopia world in their minds and they built it. So why the hell can we not build it in, in Africa and in, in our specific countries? That is cool. You know, right. so that's it's simple as that, you know, not believing is, is my is my main concern my main fear wonderful so we should always keep the fairy tale and keep working towards it that's yeah man. that's the mission man so, so i really appreciate you coming on to do the podcast uh listeners yes, this has been i can't be and michael michael with uh part save our fear we appreciate you guys listening in michael where, where can they find you my followers would like to follow you on instagram or whatnot where can we find of course you? man put up the links let, let us know you know, y'all can come and follow me. I'm the Sudanese Nigerian. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you see my snaps, if you see my Instagram, Man, people that think that I'm Nigerian, so but I'm Nigerian Sudanese. Weddings. I'm like, first of all, how? <laughs> I live for Nigerian weddings. I want to go to a Nigerian wedding and get my get my outfit, you know, get myself dressed and all that, and get my spray money so I can let okay. people know. <laughs> but um, you guys can come and enjoy my beautiful, amazing life. You can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my handles are Mike Majuk. So M-I-K-E-M-I-K-E. And last name is M-A-J-O-K. M-A-J-O-K. Mike Majuk. Um, the Connector. That's going to be on Instagram. You can find me there. Um, on Facebook, just put Michael Majuk. M-I-C-H-A-E-L. And then my last name, M-A-J-O-K. That's where you can find me on um, Twitter, on Facebook, um, on LinkedIn as well. So you can reach out through those various different networks. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, my G. Um, I'm going to stop the recording shortly and we'll talk offline. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening in. It's been I Can't Dad earlier with Port Save Africa. See you. Yes, sir. Bye. <laughs>